Sunstrom Recruitment are the leaders in health and safety recruitment. If you're considering a career change or need to discuss your organisation's hiring, reach out to the team today. We were awarded Recruitment Agency of the Year in Health and Safety in 2023 and are a proud sponsor of Health and Safety Conversations. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me this afternoon is the wonderful Sarah Thomas. Sarah, how are you? Great, Tom. Glad to be here. We're certainly uh, glad to have you on. Um, How is the weather in your part of the neck of the woods? It's actually a little bit disappointed. We was supposed to have a snow hazard warning yesterday and it hasn't really come to much and as I live in Cromwell which is between Queenstown and Wanaka two of the key ski areas in New Zealand and we could really do with a good dumping of snow right now. I think I've seen snow twice in my life and uh, I don't ski because of various things but I'll blame uh, poor knee health not lack of skill or anything so doesn't really probably excite me as, as much as you. Okay, Sarah, I've got you on the show because you're fairly frequent on LinkedIn and you're in and around the safety type of sphere. So I know a little bit about you and the views because you're, you're pretty eloquent in expressing them online. But for those who haven't heard of you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself what you've done professionally in the past and what you're currently up to? Well, my health and safety career pretty much started way back in 1993 when I was a surf lifeguard. I think it's the ultimate risk management in a dynamic setting because every time the sea goes out, tide changes, everything can change. And I... Yeah, sort of went to university, got a BALLB, sort of joke about how I majored in ski patrol and running around doing hydrography with the Naval Reserves. 
also interesting because Ski Patrol, I really got into avalanche awareness and, and digging pits and learning how to manage that hazard. With the Navy, I really enjoyed damage control school, so that was all interesting. Went off, did a few years of ski patrol, outdoor instructing, general traveling around the world, being a bit of a bum. Came back to New Zealand and landed in, it was well, back then it was Transrail. So I ended up in network standards and safety for our rail corridor in New Zealand. And then I spent some time in oil and gas, heavy manufacturing. I sort of got to a crux point in my career and decided I needed to do a little bit of an eat, pray, love episode so I quit for a year that turned into a little bit longer because I I went back to Temple Basin where I started ski patrol and was a hut custodian then I ended up working for the Department of Conservation and I met my partner now husband Jeff while we were both living in Dock House 2 in Franz Josef on the west coast another beautiful area of the world Jeff went ended up deciding to go to surveying school so we ended up in Dunedin and that's when I started my consultancy in 2011. And I've been working with small to medium businesses ever since. I really love the variety of consulting. I do work for some bigger companies, but predominantly most of my clients are sort of 20 to 30 workers in high hazard sort of areas they don't, they can't afford to have an in-house health and safety person. So they just want someone that's going to work with them as a safety partner. And today I live, as I said, in Cromwell. I've got an eight-year-old son called Ollie, who is a little adventure beast with the rest of us. We like skiing and mountain biking and hiking. And a little dog who's a Ken Terrier like Harry McCleary called Tussock. That's pretty much where we're at. <laughs> It's it's interesting. The next guest, or oh, next week on our host uh, on the pod is from Cromwell, but that's Cromwell in England. So, oh wow, yeah, interesting. I think I think geographically I, imposed. I, I think I think one of the questions I asked him was why Cromwell. So, why what's what's attractive about Cromwell, New Zealand? To be really honest, being heavily into the outdoors, Jeff and I wanted to live in Central Otago. However, Wanaka and Queenstown are very expensive. So there were two things. One is Jeff got a fabulous job at a company called Lampro when he came out of university. And two, we could actually afford to buy a house here. <laughs> and the irony of it is, is the housing market's still absolutely crazy down here. And we're very, very grateful that we bought our house in 2016 because of, yeah, as I said, you can you can be hardworking dual income families and paying horrendous rent at the moment which is just a reality for a lot of people yeah yeah my wife's originally from Auckland and she tells me about the the awesome prices for pretty ordinary houses there at the moment yeah um, to be honest I'm glad I'm not there yeah I can understand that and it's the old housing stock in New Zealand like there's a lot of problems with mold and insulation and asbestos all sorts of things so yeah, it's it's not a fun place to be, particularly if you want to raise a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can understand that. All right, looking into your past, I, I I looked at I look at people's what they've achieved academically, and you can usually see a sort of a, a linear path from where they originally thought of to where they're going. <clears throat> where, 
It's not quite that for you. I'd say it was a fairly unusual path. Bachelor in political science. What was the thought there? Bachelor of Arts, political science? I, when I was at school, I really loved debating and public speaking. And so everyone's like, go to law school, it'll be great. And I decided (laughs) I wanted to do poll sci because I wanted to learn more about the world. The interesting thing is I always maintain that my law degree taught me to regurgitate, whereas my pole sci degree taught me how to think. So it's lots of stuff around, you know, international relations, war, conflict. And I also did a few philosophy papers, which I'm really grateful for. And probably one of my favorite papers was called Antarctic Studies. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Look, it was one of those things I always wanted to do. I did a, a crazy qualification, well, degree, which is the Bachelor of Arts in Terrorism and Counterterrorism. And wow. yeah, people people go, and <laughs> what 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 were you thinking at the time? And I go, yeah, you don't really want to know, but okay, you you at the moment great for critical thinking, but then you moved into the safeties field. So mm-hmm. you talked about surf life saving. I've got to be honest. Does New Zealand have any decent beaches? Yeah, we have a lot of decent beaches. And I did actually patrol at Piha. There is a, the original Bondi rescue was actually at Piha. And then the show format was stolen by Australia. But that was 24 years ago when I was still happy to run around in a swimsuit in public. Great waves. We also, yeah, it depends what you want. If you want surfing, there's fantastic surfing at Mount Moganui down in Dunedin. If you want... To feel like you're in Fiji, head up to somewhere like Kiri Kiri Pai here in the Bay of Islands. We've actually got a bigger coastline than the mainland United States. Yeah, yeah. You if really should. You, you, you really should perhaps think of a career in tourism, tourism for for New Zealand because that that's a spectacular little spill you're given. Makes me want to go and perhaps visit family of, of sorts. All right. You'd had a role as a community relations ranger. Um, Not quite sure, but what does that actually do? Sadly, that role doesn't exist anymore. So in New Zealand, the Department of Conservation is a lot like your National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And this community relations role to me was fantastic because sort of part one was looking at community engagement and environmental conservation programs with both schools and the general public and that brought in all my outdoor instructing stuff because when I was in England I got my level two city and guilds and worked with eight to 12 year olds so that was my absolute happy space and the other side of it was concession management and the interesting thing is so conservation land is given different designations so it could be a national park or a conservation area or a scenic reserve and depending what that designation is depends on what sort of commercial attributes you could do in that area so you end up having to pay for the concession to be doing something on public land now the super fun side of it was I got to go on a heli hike on Franz Joseph Glacier with the Franz Joseph Glacier guides to audit that they were meeting the requirements of their concession, which strangely enough is very similar to health and safety audit. I also got to do helicopter whitewater rafting up the Whataroa River, which is known as the Grand Canyon in New Zealand, and of New Zealand, and that was spectacular. The things that were not so fun were doing things like farming concessions and black sand mining concessions. 
because so there'd be these odd strips of land beside a river or a creek and essentially it was just part of a big farm paddock and the challenge is the conservation land is supposed to be managed by conservation values and the farmland you want to manage by good farm management practices and I'd be turning up in my two-wheel drive Ford Ranger praying that I didn't get stuck and have to be towed out by a tractor. And, you know, originally I thought that a strainer was something you got your kayak stuck in. I had no idea it was part of a fence. And so that was a really steep learning curve. And then the black sand mining, you know, there'd be two of us and we'd go out on a quad bike down these areas to check that people we're doing the right quotas and things but you know part of you was like am I going to come across a meth lab or someone's cash crop like you just had it was so remote and you had no idea what you're doing so you know luckily I didn't have any dreadful experiences but it was um definitely out of my comfort zone and the weird thing is as soon as you put on that ranger uniform people assume that you know everything and yeah, I don't know. The Department of Conservation is evidently probably one of the highest qualified government departments for the lowest pay. And you'd talk to people and they're like, oh, yes, I have a doctorate in the avian studies. And they're just, well, I shouldn't say just, they're a Kiwi ranger that's going and getting Kiwi eggs to protect the endangered species. Um, but it's not sort of the role that you'd normally associate a high level doctor doing. Yep, yep. So it was a fantastic it's it's back then before all the restructuring and changes that came through it's the job where people actually lived the company values like the kiwi rangers would be volunteering to go and do kiwi counts with members of the public on the weekends because they love doing it you know like that's that's pretty cool yeah so yeah. really enjoyed it it was an amazing time Speaking of endangered species, I'm just curious. Over here in Australia, in certain parts of Australia, the, the residents of certain areas are, are very passionate about everyone should keep their cats inside because they're killing native wildlife. And my lovely wife says, there's none of that in New Zealand. I go, oh, I went, I don't know. Kiwis are pretty helpless, aren't they? Wouldn't wouldn't you try and keep cats from attacking them? But is there much of an emphasis on, you know, keeping domestic animals away from endangered wildlife in New Zealand? Well, they've tried really hard to get them off Stewart Island, which is one specific area. And you have to remember that the way New Zealand developed, there weren't any land-based carnivores or mm. predators. So what that means is that a lot of our birds are flightless and put their nests in silly places where they can be predated really easily. So things like dogs, cats, stoats, weasels, ferrets, all of these things that have been introduced mm. have, you know, it's it's wreaked havoc. And there are some areas where they've put up big predator-proof fences. There are some areas where they put populations of animals out on islands to get them away from the rats and cats and everything else. There has been a couple of people that have tried to really raise arguments about not having domestic cats, and that has faced some really robust anti-discussion, <laughs> shall we yeah. say that. it's. But then again, there's bigger issues to talk about at the moment. We're in an election year, and 
yeah, it's going to be really interesting for both business and health and safety and a whole lot of other things, depending on who our next government is. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, you've done something that most people have ever spitballed and, you know, anyone who likes Instagram and that goes, oh, wow, that'd be so cool, which is travel writing. Travel writing. How on earth did you get into that? Well, that was, I'd done a couple of years for the Department of Conservation and what I decided to do, I'd always wanted to do travel writing. I'd always loved writing. And there was a diploma in travel writing that I did. And that was fantastic because it taught me everything from how to, you know, scope and pitch a story to editors, how to put things online, how to take photographs to highlight the story understanding different types of writing, whether it, because, you know, online writing is very different to writing for a magazine or a newspaper. Journalism standards and ethics, which was really interesting, like what you can and can't print. And even had the business side of things, you know, how to set yourself up as a sole trader, what an invoice look, sort of looks like. I, I sort of joke in some ways, the travel writer was almost like the training wheels to becoming a health and safety consultant. And I'm actually quite proud of the fact that I managed, sorry, Tussock, the dog is barking in the background. I managed to break even, if not make some money. And I also did a little bit of motel cleaning on the side. And it was, again, it was a wild time. Really, really enjoyed it. However, it's not really sustainable long-term. No, no. Yeah, a lot, lot, lots of, lots of dream jobs are, on the margin, shall we say, but that's all right. Of the places you've visited in your extensive travels, what's the favourite? I've actually got two. One was after I did my ski patrol season in Tahoe, we went and visited Yosemite National mm. Park. And that park just blew me away. We were really lucky because we're sort of going at, in the spring, so it wasn't crazy busy. And that sense of insignificant you get from these massive cliffs and huge waterfalls, I just, it was magical as far as I was concerned. And the other one was in 2019, we went on an extended family trip with, you know, my parents and my sister and her family. And we went to Vietnam and we were in Da Nang. And I just loved Vietnam, like, you know, visually the jungles, the beaches are magnificent. And then sort of we went into Hoi An and they had the beautiful markets. Like it was just a visual feast of so much to see and taste and do and smell. And I really loved the people. And I think probably one of the most interesting things about Vietnam is they literally have been, you know, invaded right back to, I think it was about 800 BC that the Chinese first invaded them. And then they had the Mongolian people came through and then there was like China again, then France, then Japan, then the USA. So even though they have their you know, very specific traditions associated with their company country, there's been imprints from all these other different influences. And the people were just beautiful. They were just so kind and calm. 
again though I was in the tourist areas and I completely own that like if I lived there full-time I might have a different view but that was just my impression of it yeah no that's great that's great Karina's view of Vietnam is pretty much the same so that's good that's good all right one of the things I see well I won't say regularly but quite often is you put out these little little posts on LinkedIn which is view from the scaffold which is awesome. Absolutely love it. I love the idea of it. But where did that come from? Well, it's actually, it's a bit sad, really. The last year and a half have been really hard. I My dad died suddenly. My mum didn't cope with his death well. Then my mum got cancer. And I have to say that it is really hard when you are running a consultancy and trying to do the best for your clients and everyone else. And yet the world's imploding around you. Mm. And so, you know, I have this amazing counsellor who's been supporting me through that. And one of the things she said to me is you need to focus on joy. And the thing is, one of the companies I work for, you know, they're artisan roofers. Like they do beautiful copper architectural crafted roof. And I love being up there and seeing that. And the other thing is I actually... You know, I think that a well-made scaffold is a thing of art as well. So what I was trying to do is that rather than turning up to the site inspection and blazing through it and telling everyone what they were doing wrong, I forced myself to stop, take a moment, have a breath and take this photo. And, yeah, and it's actually sort of gone a little bit viral like there's joe pragmore who's the general manager of health and safety for fulton hogan she's been posting them Troy beaumont who actually knew when he worked for the franz joseph glacier guides he now runs a fabulous rope access company and he's posted a few view from the scaffold companies well photos as well of like his boys doing rock work in spectacular locations and i think we as a safety profession need to do more of celebrating that sort of thing. The fact that we do get out and we meet some fantastic people and we see some fantastic work. And I also think that scaffolders are probably one of the most underrated trades because basically like my crews, I've got a couple of different clients that couldn't do their job if the scaffolding wasn't there. And so I kind of, yeah, it, it's a lot of things. It's it's giving me personal joy. It's taking a moment to appreciate where I'm at. And it's, yeah, appreciating workmanship too. Yeah, it, I'm not sure if you have, but it's one of those things that I think would, would do very well on other forms of social media as well because, mm. yeah, it's impressive. It, it's impressive. And I don't say that lightly. And I don't say that to everyone. So well done with that. I don't know if you're aware that there's a, seems to be a great consensus over here in Australia that if anyone is working in scaffolding in Australia, you can guess which country they come from. New Zealand? New Zealand. I kid you not. Yeah. I kid you not. All right. You also come across professionally as a very well-read person and the posts you actually do are, I don't know, well-constructed and literate. Being well-read... Has there been any book in particular or any author in particular that has shaped your views on safety 
more significantly than others? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, because I've read so many books, I cut it down to the top four and then the one I really want to talk about. So when I started consulting, the two books that probably had the biggest impact on me was Tog Conklin's pre-accident investigation and Eric Colnagel's Safety One and Safety Two. Then more recently, I really loved Amy Edmondson's Fearless Organization, David Proven's A Field Guide to Safety. Mm -hmm. And have you heard of The Prepared Leader by Erica James and Lynn Perry Wooten? I may have, but I not off the top of my, let's just show it. Oh, oh, look at that. Look at that. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I shall get a copy. It's all about crisis management. And, you know, the whole people, planet, profit. And it's very, very interesting book, very practical. But my all-time favourite, which I think I have somewhere on my desk, I've probably hidden it somewhere, is, oh, it's this one. It's uh, yes. The Relationship Factor and Safety Leadership. And Rose is actually one of my mentors. Oh, and she is so awesome. She is so awesome. You are so lucky. I, well, that's another thing, like, you know, how you said with your podcast, how you, you sit there and can't believe you're talking to these amazing people. I had some really great conversations with Rosa on LinkedIn, just messaging. And then I said, you know, put my big girl pants on and said, would you please mentor me? So once a month, we meet up and just talk about things. And we, I call them the fireside chats and literally having Rosa on tap. She's, she's my wise woman. And She's done so many incredible things. I mean, to still be producing books like this in her 70s, I'm like, that's who I want to be. And she's still so engaged and so sharp with what she's saying. And, yeah, I really love the whole idea of safety is really about building relationships, having effective conversations, and then demonstrating leadership. It's, it's, it's to me, it's what she's done is it's a whole lot of stuff from HR quality and health and safety that's just being distilled together. Yep. And I and I love the fact that you learn so much through narrative and just stories and things, whether it's your own examples or someone else's. Like I get really frustrated when you see these big involved arguments on LinkedIn where people mm -hmm. are like, just you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And I'm like, well, can you give me a practical example? So no, that's that's definitely read this this year. Got one of the first copies, and it's amazing. Very good. I got to tell you with those arguments on LinkedIn. I used to be willing willing to bite, willing to get involved. Now I'm just like, if someone comes out, rubbishes me or anything, I just mm -hmm. I just let it through to the keeper. I just go, mm -hmm. it is not worth my time and effort debating someone online if they've got a different view. It's, 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 I feel like even on LinkedIn, if you don't like what someone's saying, just keep scrolling, you know, just keep scrolling. You know, you don't have to assassinate their character or anything like that. It, mm. It's, we're all adults and we're all, what did I hear the other day? I heard, I heard a, a good quote. It said, uh, opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. And I went, true. Absolutely true, but no, she is she's amazing, and and, and mm. 
congratulations for actually asking because that's the thing when I, I think most people don't realize they go oh I couldn't do this I could well you can't if you don't ask I'm and, literally meeting up with you tomorrow morning on zoom and it's oh. yeah, as I said it's one of the highlights of my month yeah 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 all right I'm gonna ask you one that I haven't really thought about until this morning it's currently in New Zealand there's a uh, court case going on Mm -hmm. high-profile court case about White Island. And uh, some pretty significant evidence has come out already about the lack of preparedness and the lack of safety measures that had been put in place. Has New Zealand ever... I don't know the answer, so I'm just curious. To your knowledge, how's that? Rather, we'll temper than asking you directly. To your knowledge, has New Zealand ever jailed directors or company executives over safety matters no no and one of the it's not actually going to be standing in the next election but there are definitely people in national that want to bring in corporate manslaughter Mm. and um i suspect that if national does get into play after the next election they'll rip the guts out of a whole lot of stuff Mm. but they will try and bring that in. And although, again, it's really interesting. So the best person I reckon to talk to about Ficara and what's going on there is Grant Nicholson. Have you met him? No, I have not. Oh, he's he's sort of the Greg Smith of New Zealand. And Greg Smith has some wonderful stuff. He's already, because he did a lot around Pike River, because a lot of our mm. new legislation was a direct result of Pike River. Mm. And I think... The thing from Ficare, which I find. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Really hard as I look at it, you know, I've got my legal brain. I've got my outdoor instructing experience. Mm -hmm. And then I've got that I'm a mother of an eight-year-old that could have been on that trip because, you you know, it's the sort of thing that our family would consider doing. Mm. And what's fascinating to me is there is such a patchwork 
quilt. Like it's a lattice of issues that has come together. And at the moment, they seem to be just focusing on dollars, waivers and disclaimers. Whereas I'm kind of like, like what's really interesting to me is, first of all, there's an, there's an island in Hawaii that does very similar tours. And mm. you had to wear full overalls, like boiler suit to do that didn't do that on Fikade and it blows my mind that there are people that lived or died according to their clothing choice that day yep yep there was a guide that was in charge of a group of seven people that couldn't speak English mm. there was there's this whole thing around so the helicopters landing is not a tourism activity so that didn't get audited according to the tourism activity framework, which came out of a river boarding accident a while ago. And then the boats were assessed under maritime safety. Like, you know, is the ship seaworthy? Does it have flares? Does it have life jackets? But no one talked about, well, what's your emergency evacuation plan if the volcano erupts? Because, you know, mm -hmm. you could also have a tidal wave. What are you going to do? Yeah. There was a jetty there that you really could only access sort of at mid to low tide. Again, that place in Honolulu, they had refuges, like like mining refuges at the wharf and up at the crater. There was a refuge on the island. It was over at GNS. So that's comparing across mm. jurisdictions. But within our jurisdiction, we have Ruapehu and Narahoe. So Ruapehu hopefully still has two ski fields on it because they just about went bankrupt. But GNS has a really robust reporting system around volcanoes, lahars, everything, the ski area operators, the mountain bikers in the summer, the people doing the Tongariro crossing, really detailed evacuation and emergency plans, nothing to that standard on Fakare. So there's, there's a lot of questions to be asked. But here's another thing, though. I'm pretty sure it was earlier this year, it showed a whole lot of families out on the island mm. putting up a memorial stone to everyone that had died. And there were people in jandals and shorts. Yep. And that, to me, just blows my mind. And I... And uh, yeah, and again, you know, when I was in rail, we had someone die on top of a multiple unit because they touched the KVA and they had severe burns. And, you know, at, when I did volunteer ambulance, I've seen people with severe burns. It is a horrible, miserable way to die. And the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, there's a whole lot of people from Australia and everywhere else. Yeah, and and the thing is, GNS had communicated that they were at level two, but there is so much, so much in that story and so much complexity to that story. And again, sorry, my dog's barking again. I'm going to be very interested to see how it rolls out in the courts. As I said at the moment, the fact that they're getting caught up in waivers and disclaimers, and that to me has already been resolved under civil legislation, civil law isn't the real issues. Mm. so yeah I, it'll be interesting my look I, I see public opinion and I understand public opinion my thoughts are that probably no one will go to jail 
it will, no, it, will it, it will it will be one of these things that everyone goes oh it was a horrible accident it was unforeseen blah 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 mm. but it's hard to argue that you didn't know what was available when things on similar places around the world were publicly accessible about what the practices are and that it's hard to argue that you've done everything reasonably practicable to protect those people when it blindingly obvious you haven't but the other thing i'll say about that is i wouldn't get too excited about industrial manslaughter or a version of it for mm -hmm. new zealand unless it is crafted carefully because you you would expect with the increase in fatalities etc that we've had in australia in the last couple of years at the workplace that more people would be not only charged but successfully prosecuted and except for a less than a handful it's it's mm. just not the case because the legislation is constructed that there is such a high threshold of evidence that must be met for a prosecution to be successful that in my opinion at least it's highly unlikely that many people will ever see that and and whether the legislation was originally put in just to satisfy the public demand for we're mm. doing something. But then that would suggest it's almost tokenistic or just you know, feeding the chooks. We're just throwing some breadcrumbs out to people mm. to keep them happy. I, I feel like it's dog whistling as well. And Greg Smith, who's far better versed in this, has a lot of really interesting things to say. And for me, the, the top line on that is, yes, you can have corporate manslaughter. Yes, you can try and get your pound of flesh, but it's still not a deterrent mm. to actually stop the thing happening in the first place. And that's that's the other thing is, you know, I need to make it very clear that this Fakare White Island thing, it's been horrific because it took over two years for the investigation to be done. And then it's taken nearly two years to get to court. And it has deeply affected so many people and, you know, all the cliches come out and I don't want to be an armchair expert. Mm. I just hope that we do actually learn some lessons because, I mean, again, I don't know if you know about this, but we had another incident recently up in the Abbey Caves where there was an outdoor instructing teacher that took a group of boys into a cave and one of them drowned in flash flooding. Mm. Now, from what I've gleaned from the newspapers, the fact pattern is very, very similar to what happened to the Maniatoto Gorge at the mm. Edmund Hillary yeah. Centre. And they'd planned to go rock climbing and said, can't do it because it's too wet. One of the parents rang up the headmaster and said, hey, look, my son's not doing this. Why are you doing this? The headmaster said, hey, look, I back the instructor. He's making the call. He's going to do it. They had, I know that area, and they had to walk past a massive sign that's like a metre high and half a metre wide saying prone to flash flooding. Mm. And where, where this gets me is, when I was in England, one of the centres that I worked at, we took kids down into the Dartmoor Cave system. So for a week, I had to be in the van with the radio 
then I had to do, like I'd already done all my basic outdoor instructing, first aid, general stuff, then for caving, I had to do this week of being on the van, like understanding the rhythm of how it works. Then I had to do three days where we did, we had to be able to basically draw the map draw the cave or the entrance and exits. Then we did a whole lot of scenario training and it was everything from headlamp gone out to someone's broken an ankle to someone's missing. And then you're allowed to be a second lead. Then you had to do a whole season before you could actually lead that group. Like there's a really robust, you know, training structure, competency and Again, I think that's going to really come out around the, I again, I look at it from an anthropological, political science perspective. And the thing about New Zealand is we're really proud of the fact that we get stuff done. Mm. And number eight wire, we're innovation. And we make do because we're on the other side of the planet from Mother England and it's six months for it to come by boat. But there's this moment where you go from adapting to hitting a rumble strip and getting into normalized deviance mm. and not knowing what you don't know about outdoor instructing or caving or whatever it is when you are standing in loco parentis for a group of teenagers. Again, I'm a mother with an eight-year-old son. I don't know what I'd do if he didn't come home from a situation like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry about the the question about White Island, but it is it is quite relevant and yeah, not not particularly. I'm surprised how lax things are, but you're right. I I, th- I, th- I think from what I've seen in New Zealand, it's she'll be right. I mean, Australia we used to be she'll be right, but I think New Zealand is. 20 years behind with the she'll be right and everything will be okay if we just have give it a go and maybe perhaps it won't well this is a thing with bendy doors like I sometimes I joke about and it the further away from Auckland it feels like the worse you get which is why I'm so careful about who and what I work with but when I work for bendy doors once a month I got flown across the ditch to sit in Sydney at the big head office and pretty much it was a beat up of how New Zealand's doing everything wrong. And But I'm <laughs> like, that's not in my legislation. I have a unionized workforce. I mm. can't enforce things that aren't legislated. So this, this was back in sort of 2006-ish. And then, yeah, same thing. I'd go up to the head office in Clontarf and see the standards of things that were being rolled out. And for me, trying to get the feasibility and the budget and the sign-off and everything, it just wasn't going to happen. And again, like what we're really struggling with is, so our regulator is so under-resourced. There was a webinar where Selena Armstrong, who's, CEO of the New Zealand Institute of Safety Management interviewed Phil Parks who's the CEO of WorkSafe and I came away thinking good grief if you were the CEO of a corporate normal organization well you know like a normal commercial organization and you gave the answers of we don't have the resources to do that. You need to sort that out yourself. Chances are you might end up with a preemptive court case. 
Yes. And so like they those they'll sit there, I don't know what the exact numbers is, but they'll say, Oh, you know, we've got 300 inspectors with warrants. Well, the thing is, if 120 of those are actually sitting in head office in Wellington writing policy, that's not the people that are out on the ground. And from what I've heard, like, you know, they bring these inspectors in, they pay a ridiculous, it's a lot of money to train an inspector and get them up to standard. And then the churn and loss is huge. And again, you know, one of the things that came out of Pike River was the fact that we didn't have enough mine inspectors. Mm. And, you know, it's it, it's really hard. So this year, in January after Christmas, I came home and was doing a whole lot of site visits. And I saw project managers and foremans and supervisors who looked like they hadn't had a holiday. Yep. You know, like the stress in the constructive industry is really high. They can't get resources. They can't get product. Shifts happening. Can't follow the critical path. And I often I'll just walk on site and say, "Hey, what's happening?" And boy, do they tell me. <laughs> and it's it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of putting Rose's work into practice. But when you have people that are that stressed, it's getting and a lot of the other thing with me is a lot of my clients work down the subcontracting chain. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to work for a principal and manage some huge place. I, I like I like working with scrappy, innovative people. And the thing is that it is getting to the point where on certain sites, like I breathe a huge sigh of relief when my team is packed up and gone. Mm -hmm. There's other areas where I'm like the phone rings and I'm looking at it going, what is this going to be? Mm -hmm. And like one thing I find really interesting is there was a prediction at the start of COVID that there'd be a lot of workplace incidents. You know, people would be so stressed and this would be happening. But in actual fact, a lot of the stats went down. And, you know, you can look at the data and go, well, the truth is there wasn't a lot of people at work. But even in those critical industries, people were so aware of what they were doing. It was great. Whereas I think right now, people are so fatigued and they're all redlining and they're all burnt out. And I just feel like the next six months to the year is going to be forged steel moment. We're all going to get heated up to a thousand degrees and have the crap beaten out of us. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Is it is there any particular reason you think people are feeling that fatigue level at the moment? I don't know. And again, please remember I'm not a psychologist. Just my observations are at work, the key things that are driving people insane is you just can't get employees. Like getting skilled technical people that are going to pass drug tests and things like that is really hard it's exacerbated in the area I live in because like in Queenstown Cromwell and Wanaka there are no houses to rent mm. like there are literally skilled trades people living in their vans when there's snow on the ground like it's insane and you know, I've got one team that often does a big crock pot at lunch just to make sure they know people are getting a good feed in them that in a warm smoko room so there's that at work as i said there's the issues of the supply chain and the cost of everything going up like someone was telling me a bostic silicon has increased in price by something like 120 percent over the last two years and 
up in Auckland, I know what they're doing with tenders and quotes and things is saying this stands for 48 hours because everything's increasing so much. We've, we've just had, we had like basically the government had said we're, we're going to take the tax off diesel. So that's just come off. So the cost of diesel's gone up heaps more. But then what I'm seeing like as far as mental health goes, the people that are really being affected are the supervisors and the managers that are sort of between 35 and 50. Where they are at life, they've still got a big mortgage. A lot of them may have bought their house and got cheap money. And suddenly, you know, they're moving from paying 2.6% on their mortgage to paying 7%. Mm. Because in New Zealand, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but we tend to fix our mortgages for, say, two to three years. Yeah. Yeah. And so you now have households where they have to find another $400 a week or, you know, something ridiculous like that. And even if you were a lawyer or an accountant or on a high-paying job, that would be hard to do. And then the other side to that is we have a real problem with early childhood in New Zealand we just don't have enough spaces like in Cromwell there's a three-year waiting list so you have people that would quite like to go back to work and make things breathe easier but they can't get the child care to do it and so yeah and as I said when you have that responsibility of kids and mortgages and then you're also having the stress at work. It's like you can't drink from an empty cup. Yeah, yeah. Now it's it's it sounds like there's some deep seated fundamental issues, which sooner or later will come to the head, no doubt. Mm. All right, moving on to some happier stuff. Yeah, the principle of be safe now, employ me now. What do they do? What do you do? Well, it's interesting because back in 2011, I feel like I'd take on anyone and I'd probably go to the opening of an envelope if I thought that <laughs> I'd get a, I'd get a client out of it. Yeah, and when I was living in Dunedin from 2011 to 2015, before I got pregnant with Ollie, I was doing happily doing HR and health and safety. And one of the things that I work really hard with is to build a really solid relationship with the HR team and make sure that we're integrating our approaches and, you know, I'm not creating own goals that could turn into personal grievances or constructive dismissal. Like, and with each client that I have, when they're talking about things like drugs and alcohol or well-being or stress, I make sure that everything's aligned. And it's amazing how having that no surprises, transparent approach really works. And I get really frustrated when I hear health and safety and HR people going at each other, because it's like, we're all going to lose. It's, it's <laughs> not serving anyone. So the thing is, once I became a mum and discovered that I couldn't just start full-time consulting again after three months wrapping my baby in my superwoman cape, I just decided to focus on health and safety. As I've said before, most of my clients, you know, I do have some bigger clients that I really enjoy working with, but most of them are sort of 20 to 30 people. I will go in and do a full systems operational audit 
and then we'll map out what we're going to do over the year and when we can do audits and what we're going to do with training and things like that. Sometimes I do the whole lot for them. Sometimes an office manager will be doing a lot of it and then I'll just have an oversight making sure that happens. Sometimes I've got clients that are going for sort of a ISO 45001 audit. I really love going in and working with the team and getting them to the point that they get, you know, no non-conformances in their audit and they're doing really well and the auditor is really happy and life's good. Like I like doing, rather than doing the audit, I like setting people up to win on the audit. And I have been called in, you know, after there's been, say, an accident or something go wrong with people that want to, well, work out how can we do a long-term plan. And again, I very much call myself a generalist. It still scares me that you can ask one question to 10 different safety professionals and get 10 different answers. Yep. Yep. And it's really funny too how my careers evolved because like back in 2002, I derived my positional power from my knowledge. It's like, I know what we're going to do. Whereas now probably one of the first things I'll say is that depends or I don't know. I'm going to do some research. It's a complex issue. Yeah, just that whole evolution of not trying to be the police cop slash technical expert that can crusade and save the day. Quite change, quite a big change in the last 20 years. And yeah, I really enjoy it. I still sometimes, because I used to... In Dunedin, something else I did was careers guidance, executive coaching, and I got a reputation for helping people who had either burnt out or been bullied or had some nasty reason for leaving their executive job Mm -hmm. and helping that person take control of their narrative, write their CV, and prepare for interviews in a way that was comfortable and authentic for them and you know manage things like references and reference checks and and that whole thing and that that actually brought me quite a lot of joy as well so occasionally I still get called up to do that but pretty much it's just bog standard generalist safety and I yeah I do training as well although the thing is we have some fabulous training providers in New Zealand And I'd rather say, hey, look, go do this. This is all they do. And that's going to meet the needs that we need for this than deliver it in-house. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mm. All right. I think we've done a fair chop of an interview today or chat. Sarah Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking speaking with you today. I will get the words out sooner or later. But for now, we will have to leave it there. But I do look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks. It's been an absolute privilege. And yeah, as I said, it's it's still a little bit overwhelming to think that my name's going to be on a podcast list that's got some other very big, amazing names on it too. And well-deserved being there as well. So thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Do you have a story to tell about health and safety? Something that you've learned, experienced, or witnessed? 
something that you think could help others. Health and Safety Conversations is a podcast that amplifies the voices of people from all walks of life, sharing their stories and experiences about health and safety. We're now taking bookings for recordings for season four, which begins next year. Whether you're a worker, manager, safety professional, or someone who's been personally impacted by a health and safety incident, we want to hear from you. Your story can help to make a difference in someone else's life. To book a recording, visit our website or send us an email. We look forward to speaking with you soon.